Good morning, Cornerstone. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. And let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing that you give us uh, here this morning to Uh, learn from your word together. Uh, We understand that we are sons, uh, not only um, of you, you, that we're your children, but we are even sons of the apostles. Uh, Paul writes these things for our benefit, for our instruction. And with that in mind, Father, we uh, give you praise and thanks that we can receive the wisdom that we're about to encounter here this morning. And we pray that you would give us ears that are ready to, to listen, ready to heed Uh, what Paul has to share with us. And we pray that as we receive this word, that it would be implanted deep in our soul, that would transform who we are, so that we, as your people, can better reflect your glory here on the earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the church. Or perhaps better stated, I love the idea of the church. In fact, there's perhaps no idea, no hope, no dream that I long for and even ache over as much as or as often as what is encapsulated in this thing we call the church. The church is an absolutely beautiful concept in theory. Earlier this week, for instance, my kids and I were sitting around the breakfast table doing our morning devotions, and and we were in Acts 4, where Luke writes this. He says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I mean, that's a powerful image, isn't it? To think of a community of people so concerned for the common good, a people so selfless and even self-forgetful, in their regard for one another, that they're just willingly selling their possessions, even their own homes, to make sure that everyone in the community has what they need. Perhaps even more powerful is the concept that lies behind 
this love, the one that's fueling this love. That's what we were focusing on in our devotions. I was uh, comparing the entire scene that we're seeing here to a child who willingly chose to sell off their Christmas presents so they could buy gifts to give to other more needy children at Christmas. And as I was explaining that, Ruthie got real quiet and serious. And she said to me, uh, that'd be really hard. And it would be hard, I told her. And I asked, so where do you think this kind of love comes from? David spoke up. He answered, he said, well, from the Spirit. I said, that's true. But where do you think the Spirit, what do you think he's doing to stir up the people in this way? What's he using to cause them to love one another like this? And I began to explain to the children how this love flowed out of the joy and satisfaction that the people were finding in Jesus Christ. They were of one heart and soul, the passage said, meaning they were all fixed fully on the grace that would be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I picked up a paper towel and I asked the children, if you asked me for this paper towel, do you think I'd say, do you say back to you, no, it's mine, and kind of hold on to it? And they kind of laughed and said, well, no. I said, why not? Well, because it's just a paper towel. That's right, I said, and when a person has their hope fixed on Jesus Christ, that's what their, even, even their own house can seem like by comparison, is worth little more than this paper towel I'm holding. And that's when they can begin to say to one another, you know, here's my house if you want it. I don't really need it anymore. I mean, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of a people so filled with hope and satisfaction in Christ that they'll willingly surrender whatever comforts they may enjoy in this life for the good of their neighbor. It's a picture so captivating that Jesus indicates that even the unbeliever will be able to see the beauty of it in glory, give glory to God in heaven in Matthew 5, 16. And this is actually how it's tended to work out historically, by the way, in those few moments when the church has managed to live up to this kind of a love, this kind of a calling, the times when the gospel has spread the fastest has tended to be those times when the church has been so transfixed by the hope of heaven that they've been transformed into a people of radical holiness and love. And this is why I ache over this concept as much as I do. It's because I believe this idea is instrumental to the advancement of the gospel. Again, we've been called out of the world and into the service of God's Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus. And we've been left here on this planet to bear witness to His name, to, to the rule that's going to be established in His coming kingdom. And instrumental to this calling is the example that we lift up before the world of what this coming kingdom will look like. This is how we bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's how we present the beauty and glory of Christ to the world. It's by living according to His example as His body here on earth. We are, after all, ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's more or less what the Scripture calls us. And this means that ideally the church serves as that special place where heaven and earth meet. It's the kingdom of heaven brought down and made visible here on earth, a preview of what's to come at the return of Christ. The problem, of course, is that the church so often falls 
so woefully short of this example. Yes, historically, the gospel has advanced the fastest when the church has managed to approximate something close to this ideal. The trouble is that it's failed to do this so much of the time. Instead of being transfixed and transformed by the glory of Christ, it's captivated by the allurements of the world and ponders a return back to Egypt like a dog returning to its own vomit. It's only by the Lord's discipline and prodding that the church very reluctantly enters the land of Canaan. Instead of functioning as a team where everyone's working together towards the common goal of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ with one heart and soul, it is instead marked by competition and jealousy and division and backbiting. Everyone seems to be going their own way, seeking whatever idol seems best to them and doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. This is where the aching part comes in. I see what the church looks like in theory. I see what it could be, what it could do and represent. And then I see what we are and what effect we're actually having. And I long for the moment when we'll finally rise above our sin and assume the role that God's assigned us on this planet. I think Harvard business professor and sociologist Rosabeth Moss Cantor captures the sentiment well. Uh, Ms. Cantor, by the way, wrote her Ph.D. dissertation at the University of Michigan on the factors that made utopian communities and communes in the early United States successful. That's partly what we're talking about here today. The church that Luke just described for us in the book of Acts, the church that I'm trying to describe to you, it is a utopia. It is an idealized vision of human society. Well, Ms. Cantor is a, a business administration professor now and, and speaking on the role that vision plays in a community of people, only this time I imagine relating to a business organization. She says this, A vision is not just a picture of what could be. It is an appeal to our better selves, a call to become something more. I think that probably captures better than anything else how I feel about the church. I see both what the church is and what it could be and the vision of what it could be, of what God created it to be, makes me ache for it to become something more than what it is presently. The Corinthian church, as I'm sure you can imagine, was a church that failed to live up to this ideal. There was little selflessness in this body, little holiness, little love. Instead, there was much division, much love for this world, much pride. Its founder, however, the Apostle Paul, had a vision for so much more. He ached for something more in this body. He knew what the church could be, and he longed and labored for the Corinthians to become that so that Christ might be glorified in them. What does he do to get them there? This has really been a question that we've been wrestling with for several months now as we've been exploring the opening section to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. As I've explained before, Paul writes this letter in response to several questions or I think really possibly even assertions that have been presented by the Corinthians. 
There seems to be some confusion surrounding the proper order and operation of the church, and Paul writes this letter to set the record straight regarding these matters. He writes to explain how one ought to conduct themselves within the body of Christ. In this sense, this particular letter, perhaps more than any other in the New Testament, gives us a picture of what the church will look like practically when it's living out this picture of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think people really, people really est- underestimate the importance of this letter in this regard. There are other books that describe who Jesus is better, or that describe how justification works better, or that even describe how to be transformed internally to become what God has called us to be better. But when it comes down to a very basic meat and potatoes description of what church life is supposed to look like practically, there's really no better resource that you can turn to than to Paul's letters to the Corinthians and to the letter of 1 Corinthians in particular. For instance, I pointed this out before, but the longest single discourse in the entire New Testament on the Christian worship service occurs in this letter in chapters 11 to 14. This book is highly underestimated in this regard. It really is sort of a handbook for church life. And in this sense, we should be turning to it often to provide us with guidance for how to conduct ourselves within this organization that we call the church. Again, Paul is writing this letter to explain these matters to the Corinthians. He's trying to help them grow up into this picture of Christ-likeness that God wants them to display before the world. The problem, however, is that the Corinthians don't appear to be entirely receptive to his counsel. You'll recall that Paul writes this letter after being absent from the region for quite some time. Well, it would seem that in his absence, the Corinthians' pride, their desire for esteem and respect has made them susceptible to a worldly system of thinking that has rendered Paul's teaching unintelligible and even foolish by comparison. It would appear that certain individuals have arisen in the church who are beginning to openly question some of Paul's teachings and, believe it or not, even his qualifications as a teacher. This not only makes it difficult for Paul to impart this vision for the church to the church in the sense that they're prone to reject what he has to offer, but even more basically, they're going to have trouble even understanding it. That's really the most basic problem more than anything else. Their fascination with the world and its system of thought has rendered Paul's instruction unintelligible at this point. This is part of the reason why they're rejecting him. They think him foolish, and the reason they think him foolish, Paul has already explained, is because their thinking is so unspiritual that they can't understand him. It seems like gibberish to them. And so before Paul can get into this instruction for the church, his description of the church, he must first address the thoughts and attitudes that are leading them to reject this counsel. And that's where we've been for the past several months. We've been moving systematically through this opening section of the letter where Paul is saying, uh, is, is, you know, trying to resolve uh, what you might call the interpersonal or relational groundwork um, He's trying to get that all resolved for what's about to follow. Uh, The Corinthians have begun to reject Paul's understanding of the church, and so before he does anything else, Paul is first explaining why they must accept his instruction. Of course, there have been several different elements to Paul's response. 
But all these various elements really come to a head here in chapter 4 in the form of three summary images. With these images, Paul explains how the Corinthians are supposed to view his ministry. The first image is that of a steward. One of the real problems with the Corinthians' thought, the one that's even led them to begin to compare teachers with one another and in turn begin to see Paul's ministry as an inferior product, is this idea that all these various teachers are in some way adding on top of Christ or offering something in addition to Christ. Paul has already addressed this point by explaining that this is a completely backwards way of looking at the church. The reality is that while someone like Apollos might be equipped to perform a different role in the body than Paul, they're actually still on the same team. They don't represent competing branches of Christianity because in the end there's only one God and one temple of God and one foundation for that temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even further, because of how spiritual growth happens, of course, which is to say by the Spirit of God, there's really only one way to minister the Word of God. And that's with the uh, relative uh, you know, reliance on the Spirit to produce the growth. In this sense, uh, Paul and Apollos are not visionaries or theological innovators. Rather, they're simply stewards of the mysteries of God. And this is how the Corinthians should view Paul and Apollos, as stewards. The second image is that of a spectacle. Again, the Corinthians think Paul's ministry inferior, and at least one of the reasons why they think it inferior is because of the amount of suffering that Paul has endured on account of the gospel. We probably lose sight of this today, given how much Christianity has grown since then and how much we've grown to appreciate the ministry of the apostles, but you have to keep in mind that Paul was not a popular figure in his day and age. I mean, you go to Acts 21, for instance, and Paul almost appears to be public enemy number one in Israel. He shows his face in the temple once, and a collection of Jews visiting from Asia who would recognize him on account of his missionary work that he had done in that region, they begin shouting, men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And, And this mob breaks out, and it's only on account of Roman intervention that Paul isn't killed on the spot. The the Corinthians see that element to Paul's ministry, and they either think him highly unskilled, you know, gee, Paul, uh, don't you think you could be a little bit more diplomatic about these things, that kind of thing, or perhaps they even think him cursed by God or something. I mean, There are some elements in these chapters that hint at the idea that they think themselves more spiritual than Paul. Perhaps this is partly where that's coming from, from the apparent favor that they think they're experiencing from God as demonstrated by their relative comfort. Either way, they think it's a sign of Paul's inferiority as a minister. Paul responds by by telling them that actually it's supposed to be this way. God intends for him and The rest of the apostles, by the way, he intends for all of them to be paraded before the world as a spectacle. That is to say, they're an object to be marveled at, and not in the sense of awe, you know, not in the sense of how impressive they are, but in the sense of how unimpressive and even despicable they are. Paul says that's on purpose. God wants it that way. 
And he makes this point in two ways. First, he responds to their supposed superiority with biting sarcasm. He actually mocks them for thinking themselves better than him. And then second, he moves into the third image that we encounter in this passage. And that's of a father and they as his sons. This is how he wants the Corinthians to regard him, not only as a steward and a spectacle, but also as a father, and they his sons. Of course, we began to look at this image last week. Paul says in verses 14 through 16, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Last week I explained the theological rationale for this statement where Paul gets off saying, you know, you need to remember that I'm your father so you imitate me. So I'm not going to try to rehash all of that again. But suffice to say, I said that this is a statement designed to point to Paul's authority over the Corinthians. It's not a statement that he makes to point to his love for and care for them is a statement contrived to emphasize their obligation to follow his example. And I explain that this statement is contrived not only to look backwards at what Paul just wrote, meaning not only is it designed to tell the Corinthians, you need to imitate my example in suffering, you need to imitate my style of ministry, this, this foolish presentation of the gospel, which you mock, but which I do intentionally for what are some very specific theological reasons. It's not only designed to look backwards in this sense, but it's also designed to look forward at this material that Paul is about to explain in the rest of this letter. Again, Paul is laying the groundwork here. For the rest of this letter, this is where Paul, you know, in the rest of this letter, Paul is going to explain in very practical terms what the church is supposed to look like in action. This incredibly beautiful ideal, how it's expressed practically. And now think about this. The Corinthians church doesn't live up to this ideal just yet. They don't even have a historical model to look to necessarily like you and I do today. This is all new for them. Paul is still writing many of the letters that give expression to this idea. And so again, think about this. Paul is laying the groundwork for what he's about to talk about here. And what's the model that he points to? It's himself. He says, imitate me. Look at my example. In verse 17, he even tells the Corinthians that he sent them Timothy, his beloved and faithful child in the Lord, quote, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. The church is being molded after his example, his image. It's an image that Paul has taken from Christ, no doubt. It's like what he's going to say in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? So this is modeled after Christ, but the idea is still, if the church is supposed to look like Christ, and if you want to know what Christ looks like, then you look at me. Paul is serving as this vision, this ideal to look up to. And if you recall, I said towards the end of last week's message that by extension, I think you can say it's not just 
Paul, who serves in this capacity, but the rest of the apostles as well, who Paul even refers to back in verse 9 as being spectacles along with him. These men are collectively the founders of the church, our fathers in the faith. And Paul says, if you want to know what the church is supposed to look like, look at me. You imitate me. I think depending on the context, he would even say, you imitate us. That seems to be the sentiment back in verse 1 when he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul clearly doesn't just see his own ministry in view as he makes his defense. There's obviously some others that he's lumping into this defense, this set of images that he's presenting. And it seems reasonable based off of what Paul says in verse 9, that the apostles are part of this group, this us that he's talking about up in verse 1. So I really don't think it's too far of a jump to say that Paul would be comfortable in telling the Corinthians that not only is he their father, but the rest of the apostles are as well. And what I'd like to spend the rest of the time exploring with you here this morning is how this thought should transform the way we interact with their instruction. Again, the church is this beautiful ideal to live up to, but how do we get there? How do we become what God is calling us to be? We, we see Paul's method in trying to bring the Corinthians along to this point right here. He has this model that he's trying to present to them, and in these early chapters, right, and the model, of course, is himself, and in these early chapters, He's walking the church through the kind of thought process that they need to embrace if they're going to be conformed to that model. And how does he do it? What does he tell them to do to be conformed to this image? He tells them, regard me as your father and you as my sons. So what is Paul trying to communicate in this statement? What does it mean practically to regard both Paul and, again, by extension, the rest of the apostles as our fathers. We already covered one critical aspect last week with this idea of imitation, right? Sons imitate. They resemble their father. That's clearly the main idea that Paul has in mind here. He expects the Corinthians to imitate his example as his spiritual children. But that said, what does it look like to imitate? I know that may sound a little strange. You may think, what do you mean, what does it look like? You, you copy them, right? Uh, but think about it. How? How do you learn to copy them? I think there's more to the answer to that question than you may realize. And I think if you know, we ponder this image that Paul has in view here, this father-son relationship and how it's explained through the rest of the scripture, then we can get a sense of what Paul is expecting from the Corinthians when he tells them, you imitate me. So let's take some time to explore this issue together. How is sonship expressed? Or to state it another way, how does one learn to imitate the example set by their father? I think it can be stated in two interrelated points. We're going to look at the first of these this morning. And the first is this. Expression number one, honor. Sons honor their father. This is probably the most obvious expression of sonship in the Scripture. After all, it's the one that shows up in the fifth commandment, right? Honor 
your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So I think we're all probably familiar already with the idea that children are supposed to honor their parents. But I wonder, do you know what it means to honor your father and your mother? Biblically speaking, it seems to entail at least three different concepts. The first and most obvious concept, of course, the one that really even serves as the foundation for the other two concepts, is this idea of esteem or respect. A child is supposed to demonstrate respect towards their parents. You even see this show up in the way a child addresses their parents, right? Just this week, for instance, I was in my daughter's room while the kids were playing. And uh, I hear Ruthie whispering to Elijah off the side, off to the side. She's saying, say Ryan, say Ryan. And Elijah, you know, very complicitly says it. He goes, Ryan. And then Ruthie looks up at me with this nervous kind of a smile to see what my reaction would be. And that's because she knows that that's not what she's supposed to call me. She doesn't address me by my name, right? as if we were peers, but by my title, actually, by the role that I assume in her life. Think about that for a minute. Children are instructed from birth to address their parents not so much according to who they are, but according to what they are. I'm not Ryan, according to my children. I'm dad. (laughs) Or if I could put it in the terms of an English major, I'm a common noun to them, not a proper one. And there's a reason for that, right? I I don't know that we think about that very often, but there's a reason for that. It's just like I told you a few weeks back, right? There's, There's power in a name. Names identify what an object is and what our relationship is to it. It's just like what we saw when we were talking about the the biblical terminology for elders. I don't know if you remember that, but if you recall, I said that there are three terms that we associate with that office, which can all be used interchangeably to describe different aspects of that office. Elder, of course, denotes the man's qualifications. Bishop or overseer denotes his authority or role. Um, And pastor defines kind of his function within the church and even how he performs that role as an overseer. Um, And if you recall, I said it's probably notable that the New Testament pretty much never uses the term pastor as a noun associated with this office. We like to call our elders pastors at times, but the reality is that this concept is always encapsulated. This idea of pastor is always encapsulated in verb form in the New Testament when related to that office. Instead, the terms that you see used to describe that office are either elder or overseer every time. I said that's probably not a coincidence. That's probably intentional because it tends to communicate to the congregant the respect that they're supposed to have for that office by virtue of either the qualifications or the authority that are communicated through that title. Well, it's the same way with this term dad or mom. Don't get me wrong, there can be great affection and closeness communicated by these terms, right? I mean, there's a difference between calling someone father and calling them papa. But either way, the communication of their title, their office, is designed to command a kind of respect from the child. And this is entirely consistent with the Old Testament concept of honoring. 
In fact, you go to Exodus 21:17, and it says, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The Bible expects children to esteem their parents and to even express this esteem in the way that they speak to their parents. So respect is the first concept that we see tied to this idea of honoring in the Bible. And again, this is really the most foundational concept to this notion of honoring. But flowing out of this concept come two others. The first of which is care. Again, care. This is the the second concept associated with this idea of honoring. A child is supposed to care for their parents. You see this concept revealed in passages like Matthew 15, where Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for manipulating God's word to excuse their violation of the fifth commandment, which was expressed in their refusal to care for their parents in their old age. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? But God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Jesus clearly believed that a son was obligated to help provide for their parents in their old age. And that to fail to do so was actually a violation of the fifth commandment. He says, for the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. If you think about it, this is just another way that a child expresses esteem or respect for their parents. They demonstrate their value for their parents' lives, even the value of their instruction and wisdom which they offer by helping to provide for them in their old age. They don't see their parents as cheap or insignificant, expendable. No, their lives matter. And they express both their esteem and gratitude for their parents' wisdom and instruction by providing physical care for them in their old age. The third concept associated with this idea of honor is listening. A child honors their parents by listening to their instruction. Now, I know I'm going to probably ruffle some feathers with what I'm about to say, given our cultural tendency to rebel against authority and perhaps I think probably most especially against our parents. But just so you know, biblically speaking, there really is a sense in which children are seen, not heard. And they speak when they're spoken to. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not because the child is not valued by their parents or because there's some kind of hindrance to their parents' life. You know, I keep seeing these comments on social media right now of parents talking about how they can't wait for their kids to get back to school because of how much they're getting on their nerves. And that's certainly not a biblical thought, right? Biblically speaking, children are a tremendous blessing from the Lord. We're supposed to cherish and enjoy our children. I really have no qualms whatsoever in saying that really it's a sin not to enjoy your children. It's a sign of something broken in your soul that God needs to redeem through the power of Christ. So again, biblically speaking, children are silent not because the parent is annoyed with the child or something like that. 
No, it's because the default position of the child is to be that of readiness to receive their parents' instruction. If I could put it this way, children are naive. They're foolish. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not intelligent or clever. I've known some incredibly intelligent children over the years. Rather, I'm saying that as intelligent as they may be, they still lack understanding. They're not necessarily wise. Wisdom is something you gain by experience and through the development of character. That's precisely what children lack. And so God commands parents to instruct and even discipline their children and for children to listen to their parents so they can grow in wisdom and be blessed. To quote Proverbs 22.15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And again, Proverbs 1, 8, and 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And again, Proverbs 6, 20 through 23, My son, keep your father's commandment, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Again, this is why the fifth commandment is the first command with a promise, quote, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's because a child lacks understanding. And as they heed their parents' instruction, they grow in wisdom and find blessing. And this is why children are told to listen when their parents speak. It's because when a child is talking... They're not listening. And when they're not listening, they're not learning. You learn with your ears, right? Not your mouth. Our family had to work through this principle the the week before last. I was trying to lead our morning devotions. And I try not to structure it where the children, you know, feel like they have to raise their hand before they can speak. I, I want it to be a little bit more open, informal than that. But the result on this particular morning was that as I was trying to teach, I had probably had all five kids trying to talk over me at the same time at one point, and I had to stop them. And I had to tell them, kids, listen, I, I shouldn't have to fight over you to talk. I'm trying to teach you right now. I'm trying to give you spiritual instruction, and I can't do that when you're talking. When you're talking, you're not listening. And your role right now, the role that God has placed you in for your benefit is to listen to what I have to say, not to express your own opinion. I'm trying to teach you about God and the ways of God here. And I couldn't do that if they wouldn't listen to me. This is really the point of the Bible's command to honor your parents. It commands children to esteem their parents, to show them respect, and the reason is so that they will listen to their parents instruction. And that's because if they don't listen to them, if they don't value their instruction close enough to to actually close their mouths and really heed what they have to say, then they can't learn. And if they can't learn, then they can't imitate their parents' example. And if they can't imitate their example, then they can't experience the blessing of that wisdom. In fact, when you tie this notion in to the relationship between Israel's obedience to God's commands and both the, the blessings and the cursing curses that God promises on the basis of that obedience. 
then I think you can understand why God's command, why God commands such harsh punishment on those children who won't honor their parents. I just read one passage where God commands death for the one who curses their parents. Just two verses before that, God commands the same penalty for the one who strikes their parents. Why is that? It's because godliness, holiness, is generational. It's passed down from one generation to the next as the older instructs the younger in the ways of God. And so if a child does these things and there are no consequences for it, and so a generation of children becomes so emboldened so as to rebel against their, the counsel of the previous generation, thousands, even millions, are going to suffer for it as all of God's curses are inflicted on the land. That's what happens in Judges 2. All of Joshua's generation are obedient to the Lord. And then it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the whole cycle of enslavement and deliverance begins in the book of Judges. All it takes is one generation to break the chain of godliness, passed down from one generation to the next, and then all the subsequent generations will suffer for it. I mean, is it any wonder, therefore, that one of the marks, right, of a depraved generation, of a generation that God has given over to a debased mind, is this, according to Romans 1.30, they are disobedient to parents. And so strike the scoffer, God says in Proverbs 19.25, and the simple will learn prudence. That's what Paul is threatening here in today's passage. He expects his children to imitate his example. And as you can see in verse 21, he's threatening to come with the rod if they won't do it. He's threatening to strike the scoffer. In fact, really, he's not just threatening it. If you notice verse 18, he talks about some being arrogant. Again, they're not submitted to his instruction. If you look in the very next few verses, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? This is how their arrogance is being expressed, but it's by refusing to correct this man that's involved in this heinous sin. Presumably, uh, I would think the man is probably arrogant as well, right? By, by thinking he can live in this way without any kind of consequence. And, and so Paul orders the church, let him who has done this be removed from you. And then he explains why he's issuing this instruction. Verse 5, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, clearly, Paul is not just threatening discipline here. He's issuing it. But why? What's Paul concerned about here? Is it that the Corinthians haven't respected him by giving him some kind of honorific title? No. If you think about it, Jesus actually commands the church not to bestow these kinds of honors on such obviously merely human teachers in Matthew 23, 8 through 10, saying, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. If you think about it, Paul is very careful to follow this instruction. He doesn't expect anyone to stand in awe of him in this sense. In fact, he only very reluctantly points to his authority as an apostle, and that when it's only when it's necessary for the spiritual benefit of his children. In fact, his whole point, right, of contention in this section of the letter is that the Corinthians have begun to bestow such honors on such 
obviously merely human teachers. His point is the same as Jesus' point in this passage. The Corinthians actually have only one instructor, and that's Christ. So he's not upset that they're refusing to honor him as their father in this sense. Neither is he concerned about the care they show for him. In fact, later in this same letter, we'll discover that the Corinthians were actually quite eager to give to Paul and support his ministry, but for various reasons related to their immaturity, Paul refused. So what's he concerned about? What does he want from them? It's the fact that they're not listening to him. He wants them to listen. Remember, the whole reason for this entire discourse is that Paul has become aware of the fact that the Corinthians aren't quite so sure they want to heed his counsel anymore. Again, they're starting to turn to other teachers for instruction. They're turning to guys like Apollos, you know, this slick-talking speaker who, though zealous for the gospel, still had such a deficient understanding of the gospel that, they had to be instruct, that he had to be instructed by Paul's ministry companions. They're starting to look to those guys for their example of what the church should be and look like. Even more fundamentally than this, they're arrogant, right? The Corinthians are starting to think that they've surpassed Paul in their spiritual maturity. And so what can they learn from a guy like Paul, right? This is what they're thinking. And that's why Paul is pulling rank in this instance and saying, no, you listen, I'm your father, and so you imitate me. He's wanting them to stop relying on their own understanding. He's wanting them to shut out these other sources of instruction that they're gravitating to. And he's wanting them to listen to his voice. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be the children of the apostles. It means that we honor them by listening to their instruction. I want us to come back again next week and take a look at the second expression of sonship that I find and that we I think we find in this passage. But for today, I, I just want you to really dwell on this point. I want you to ask yourself: Do I really honor the instruction of my fathers in the faith? Not to prov- not to provide you with another list here this morning because I feel like there's been several, uh, but I think that there are probably three ways that. Honor is expressed based off of what we see here in this passage in its context. So, um, do you honor your spiritual parents? Do you heed the apostles' instruction? I think here are three ways that you can test yourself and discover the answer to that question. First, honor, at least in this context in the father-son relationship, it's expressed by not turning to other sources of authority for instruction. That's really the main concern that Paul has in mind here. He doesn't want the Corinthians to turn their attention to one of these other teachers vying for their ear. He wants them to listen to his voice. You know, I think a lot of times evangelicals like to bash liberal theologians for their treatment of the Word of God. They observe how the liberal theologian will follow uh, follow the the pattern of, of Satan, right? and ask, did God really say that? Are you really sure he said don't do that? And they do this as they bring the authority and inerrancy of Scripture into question. And we like to think that we know better. We like to think we're better listeners on account of our willingness to accept the entire Word of God as the Word of God. But let me ask you this. 
How is your application when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture? In case you're not familiar with the terms I'm using, the sufficiency of Scripture refers to the doctrine which says that the Bible has supplied us everything we need both to know God and to live a life that's pleasing to God. We need to turn to no other resource. It's entirely sufficient to instruct us about how to have a relationship with God and be pleasing to Him. We take this doctrine from passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped in every good work. Uh, the Scripture makes us competent. It equips us for every good work. We don't need to turn to any other resource to tell us how to be pleasing to God. Friends, do you apply that doctrine in your life? Let me ask you this. When you face a crisis, like, I don't know, say a, a global pandemic, where do you turn to for guidance about how you're supposed to respond? Where do you go, for instance, for instruction about how to interact with your community in a time like this and what is pleasing to God in these matters? Or where do you go for instruction for how to respond to the governing authorities? Is it Scripture? Or is it some talking head on your television screen? Or, to frame it still another way, how often do you filter the decisions you make in your life through the principles described in this book? How often, I mean, when you really think about it, how often are your decisions formed by your own opinions on the subject? Like, say you find yourself in a conflict and you're not sure what to say or whether to even say anything. Can you back up your decision to speak or not to speak? Or what to speak with Scripture passages? Or are you just doing what seems best to you in that moment? I think many of us fail this test right here. We're very quick to affirm the authority of Scripture, but we're very slow to consult it before we act or speak. We're slow to consult it, so slow to consult it, that we don't even know where to turn. We don't know even what it says. We would never deny the truth or authority of God's Word. We just don't respect it. Do you respect the instruction handed down to you by your spiritual forefathers? It will be evident by how quickly you turn to this book for guidance and direction. I would venture that for most of us, the answer is no. We don't demonstrate respect for our fathers in this sense. And that's demonstrated by the fact that we would never take away from the Word of God. We just neglect it. We don't listen. This isn't what it means to be a son. Sonship is expressed by honoring one's father, and honor is expressed through listening. Friends, if you are a son of the apostles, then you need to show it by diligently seeking the instruction they have to offer in this book and listening to it. Number two, honor is expressed by not going beyond what your parents have told you. This is really the other half of what it means to listen to your parents. It means not only not ignoring what they have to say, it also means so valuing their instruction that you follow their directions precisely, not going beyond what they've told you. You listen to them that close. 
Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2, the prophet Moses, a spiritual father in his own right, right? He commands God's son, Israel. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, I'm sorry, the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. He says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. I imagine this probably happened once at one point in your life. You were in school and your teacher handed you an assignment and without ever looking at the directions, you rush on to finish it without really paying attention to what you were told, just assuming that you knew what was being asked of you. And then, of course, inevitably, you got the paper back and it was marked all over with red. And right there on the instructions is a big red circle, right? where the teacher is indicating to you that you didn't follow directions. Friends, that isn't respect. To be so arrogant so as to presume on your parents or in that instance your teacher's directions without taking the time to really listen to them. That can involve not doing everything they asked you, but it can also involve doing more than what they asked you. This is what Paul is wrestling with in Corinth. They were, the Corinthians were trying to follow these various teachers, thinking they were all adding something on top of Christ, something in addition to Christ. They were innovating on the faith. Paul corrects them and says, we're stewards. Verse 6, here in chapter 4, he then adds, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, now, again, you see the idea of example or imitation right there. He says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Do you live as a son of the apostles? Here's one way to answer that question. Do you try to go beyond what they say and sometimes make their words mean more than what they say? If you recall last week, there was a point in my message when I said that this element of imaging from father to son is something that we see throughout the scripture. And then I said, now, I'm not going to try to express why God has set things up this way, because if I did, I'd, I'd probably be speculating. I'd be inferring my points from one or two theological principles, but it's not something that's necessarily stated explicitly. That was me trying to follow this principle. It was me trying to act as a son. I'm going to listen closely to the word of God. And that in part means not going beyond what is written. Think about it. When might you be tempted to read conclusions into the word of God? When you do this, you're not living as a son. Sons honor their father by not going beyond what they tell them. Third and finally, honor is expressed by valuing your parents' instruction. It's expressed by valuing your parents' instruction. I know this probably seems redundant. I've said that honor means to esteem or value. I've said that turning to your parents' instruction and listening closely to it are ways that one expresses this kind of esteem or respect. So again, this probably sounds redundant at this point. But the reason I make this point is to communicate the simple fact that children are supposed to actually like their parents' instruction. Meaning honoring one's parents isn't just an action. 
It's an attitude. It's something that's supposed to flow out of the heart. That's why we have words like daddy and papa instead of the more formal father. There's an affection that's often expressed in a child's respect for their parents, and that's because the child actually delights in their parents' authority. They, they know their mom and dad love them, and so it's not a burden to heed their counsel. It's a privilege. It's something they enjoy. Mom and dad care for them. They provide for and protect them. And so the child, so very often, actually expresses a, an implicit trust in their parents' commands. That's how it's supposed to be. And that's how it's supposed to be, not just between us and God, but between us and God's apostles. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.24, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold, uh, of gold and silver pieces. That's how we're supposed to think about the word of God. So understand, when I say honor your parents today, again referring to the, the apostles, and then I ask you, do you turn to their counsel for instruction? Do you listen closely to what they have to say? I don't necessarily say that to shame you. Meaning if the answer to those questions is no, the solution isn't to simply feel bad about your arrogance perhaps or your lack of faith. Rather, it's to reflect once again on the care that your father has for you. Now again, I, I imagine you're thinking I'm talking about God when I'm saying that, but I'm not. I actually mean God through his apostles, through these men that he called to image his son as they founded his church. Remember the example that Paul is pointing to is one that has been molded into the image of Christ. And what that means is that you can know that these men, they care for you. They care for their spiritual children. They love the church. They're not going to steer it wrong. I think of Paul's words in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, when he said to them in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. I think also of what he says again right after this. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Listen, these men love Christ's church. And they mean to bless us when they tell us, imitate me, even as I imitate Christ. And so I'd encourage you, don't resist their counsel. Don't be like the child that the parent must discipline before they'll yield to their instruction and be formed into their image. No, rather, be like the child that happily crawls up into their daddy's lap, throws their arm around his neck, and eagerly waits for him to speak. This is what it means to see the apostle as our father. 
It means not only listening to their instruction, but loving it, really, truly loving it. My prayer as we close here this morning is that you would cherish this relationship that you have with the apostles, eagerly receive every word that they have to offer you, and be blessed. Let's pray.